Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Rose Dedan. She is the author of a new book called Tales of a Healer, Animals, Reiki, and Shamanism. Now, I found out about Rose Dedan when I did an interview with the Earth Fire Institute, which is doing remarkable work with animals. And I really had an interest in Reiki, shamanism, animal communication, and Rose Dedan is a Reiki master, an animal healer and communicator, and has tremendous experience doing healing work with animals and helping people in their relationship with animals. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the author of Tales of a Healer, Rose Dedan, to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here. First of all, I want to have the public have an explanation, an introduction. What is Reiki? Reiki um, is a non-invasive form of energy healing that balances the body mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And its origin um, is Japan from the late 1800s. And it's credited to a gentleman named Dr. Mikayo Yasui. Many years ago, I met some people who told me they were Reiki masters. And I have to be honest with you and tell you that in the earlier part of my life, I didn't believe it. I just didn't believe that energy work was real. I thought it was kind of airy-fairy. But now at age, I'm not going to tell you, 25 years later, (laughs) at age zero, I found out that there is something to it. It really works and that it's something. And I wondered if you could explain a little more thoroughly what the something is, first of all. Well, I'd like to first kind of respond to what you said about, you know, not thinking that there was something to it or that energy, you know, medicine was something that was, quote, real. Um, Because when I first um, became drawn to Reiki, it was because I reached a point in my life where it felt like it didn't have meaning or purpose. And I ended up reading an article that someone had written concerning her experiences taking Reiki. And it was my, um, I just felt drawn uh, to the to that for some reason, and asked for a recommendation um, for a class because she happened to know all of the people in the area, and ended up signing up for the class and showing up with no idea why I was there, um, just simply having you know kind of with an open open mind, and it was during the um, attunement process that I had this tremendous experience, and the funniest part of it is is that. I could suddenly feel energy running through my hands, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is real. It hadn't occurred to me until that moment that it might be. So um, Reiki is a dialogue, shall we say, between the uh, energy, what we call universal life force energy or Reiki. Is that prana or chi? Um, The chi, as I understand chi anyways, chi is personal. It is the individual um, rather than what is maybe, I mean, I don't know if chi is universal, shall we say, like all the energy that is in the universe type of thing, which is how we think of um, the Reiki energy, or ilia or life force energy um, in Peruvian shamanism. And so there's a dialogue between that energy and the recipient or the client, human or animal. The practitioner is the conduit or the straw, the way it was described to me when I was taking my Reiki training and then I described to my students is Reiki is like a milkshake. We are the straw, the practitioner, and the client is the one that is um, consuming the milkshake 
And so they're in charge of how fast or how slow because our bodies have an innate intelligence. And we have these wonderful systems that are designed to self-regulate, but sometimes they get knocked off balance by challenges, physical or emotional, traumas that occur. And so our body knows exactly where to allocate that energy, so it may draw it more quickly, more slowly. We are simply the straw, and the energy um, flows to where it's needed and helps the systems to rebalance and restore themselves. Uh, For example, a long time ago, my cat Kia was a kitten, and she experienced... um, Well, when I found her, she was very little. She was four weeks old, and I found her like three three feet from traffic. And she had a major upper respiratory infection so bad that her nose was encrusted over and she could only breathe through her mouth. And at the time, my vet, you know, was very concerned about that. And she also had a major case of fleas, like the vet had never seen any so bad before. It was like her skin was literally crawling. So being four weeks old, the best I could do was to give her a flea bath. I couldn't treat her with flea meds because it was just too early. And that took care of some, but not all. And when she reached old enough to use a product that was supposed to be safe for kittens, I used it on her, and unfortunately, she was sensitive to it. And she stopped eating, she stopped drinking, and she just began sleeping. And it's 9 o'clock at night, and liver damage in cats is very quick and can be quite is irreversible. And so I was, needless to say, quite concerned. And I thought, well, when in doubt, do Reiki. So I picked her up, and she's only eight weeks old, and she fit, you know, into the palms of both of my hands. And I started allowing the energy to flow uh, for her highest healing good. And she goes out like a light. And she's just lying there, and the energy is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And she's getting hotter and hotter and hotter to the point where the fleas actually came out to the ends of the guard hair. She looked like she was pepper studded. And I was starting to think of, gosh, is there such a thing as spontaneous combustion? <laughs> because she was just really glowing. And so I, I finally said, okay, I need to like put her down for a couple minutes. And I put her down, she walked over, she sniffed her food, and I thought, okay, we're on to something here. So I picked her back up about 15 minutes later. Another 10 minutes, she goes out like a light. She um, gets hot, but not quite as hot as the first time. And put her down. Again, she goes over, she has a little bit of water. Okay, good. Give her a half-hour break, another 10 or 15 minutes of Reiki again. She goes out like a light, but doesn't get hot this time. And this time when I put her down, she goes over, she eats, she drinks, and she goes off to play. And I thought, wow, bless Reiki. That's amazing. And I thought, what, why, how did that happen? Well, the idea is is that we have these wonderful energy systems that do great things. And one of the largest organs in the body that we forget about it being an organ is our skin. And our skin is designed to help us detoxify, among other things. Reiki helps to accelerate the healing process. And so that's what it did. It accelerated the expulsion of the toxins that were not agreeing. It needed, her body was very clear, it needed to get rid of whatever the, um, wasn't agreeing with her. And that's the method it chose to do it. 
it was just, you know, and that's why Kia's name is Kia, because she's named after the key or the Japanese word for life force energy. How much of Reiki is doing energy work with the intent to heal directed into the chakras? And explain what the chakras are for people who are not familiar with that word. Um, this, well, there's the chakras in this sense are the Indian, as in India, um, system of chakras. Um, so there's seven major chakras going from the root chakra up to the crown chakra. And they're located um, in, along the central line of the body. And they correspond to um, different uh, endocrine systems, um, so the, basically the regulators of our body. And what was the first part of the question again? You're explaining what the chakras are, basically, and how Reiki interfaces with the chakras, or does it? Mm-hmm, it does. Um, it's when we give a, quote, a, you know, a formal session, i.e. where we're going to do something other than spot Reiki. Spot Reiki being like if you bang your elbow and you put your hand there, that's spot Reiki. Um, so in a formal session, we would move from one chakra to the next, um, offering, being the conduit, offering the Reiki, and the body would draw it in as needed. Some places it's going to be more, some places less. So, for example, for the heart chakra, if someone has a cold or flu, which, of course, we're now in that season, um, the underlying um gland there has to do with regulating your immune system. And so the energy goes, basically the the chakra would be the portal, if you will, for the energy and is thereby distributed to the various um, organs or um, regulators in that area. The body distributes it because we have energy channels the same as we have um, actual um, blood, you know, blood, the veins, you know, are a channel for the blood, for the physical body to be nourished. Well, the energetic body also needs nourishment as well, and it's those those conduits, if you will, that, that carry the energy. You don't have to do um, Reiki, you know, on a central chakra for it to get to where it's needed, but it's a little more direct. And, and it, the beauty of Reiki is that it does not require any form of diagnosis. You don't have to know what's wrong with the person or know what the solution is. The Reiki, again, has its own intelligence, as does the body, and the two of them seem to work really well together. The biggest challenge in Reiki is for the practitioner to get out of the way, (laughs) to put your ego off to the side, and to simply allow, to let go of attachment to the outcome and allow um, whatever the recipient needs to happen. It's not always what we want happen. That's not what healing is about. For example, it's not always about them getting, you know, well. Sometimes it's about giving, offering quality of life and um, allowing the body to use the energy to reorganize, to um, transition into spirit. How did your work with animals begin? Um, well, it began with that first attunement in Reiki, actually. Uh, It was during the attunement process that I had an epiphany where all of a sudden I realized that I, all my life I'd wanted to be a healer. I just hadn't known it until that moment. In addition, I also knew to the deepest core of my being that I would work with animals. And that was when 
it was actually called um, Wild Kingdom Reiki at that time. It was born exactly in that moment during the attunement process. However, all my life, I've had a strong rapport with animals. I was usually the kid you found under the table with the dog <laughs> or, um, you know, hanging with the cats. I was uh, very comfortable, you know, being with animals, and they did with me. So it's uh, a natural progression, although it wasn't something that I ever, I knew that I didn't have what it, I didn't have the passion to become a veterinarian, but I definitely, once I found Reiki, which was my doorway to all things energy, um, and from there into shamanism, I found where I really, truly belonged. I want you to talk about the wolf that sat near you during a major ceremony. Are you uh, referring to Pimpernel the coyote? Um, because there was the encounter with Cucumber the wolf, but Pimpernel was the um, very interested observer at the Peruvian despacho ceremony. That's the one. Okay. Um, first of all, I should say that Pimpernel, being, with, being at Earthfire Institute, First of all, it was a phenomenal experience. And Susan and Ja are just wonderful people, and they have an incredible rapport with the animals there. So we were, our group was um, relatively small, 15 people. And that made for better interactions with the animals. And we were delighted to discover that they were going to bring Pimpernola Coyote to the yurt, which was where we were having our workshop, in order to um, interact with us, and we were told that Pimpernel had never been in the yurt before uh, with a group of people. Well, she'd never been in the yurt, and she'd never been with a group of people. Uh, and so this was going to be an interesting experience for everybody. And Pimpernel came in, and every, um, every Native American trickster story that you've heard about coyote is, I see why they exist. Um, because she was seized the moment. Um, she came in and she hit the ground running and she was like, let me try this. Let me try that. What about this? You know, we were hiding things left and right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was this mad scramble and it was pretty funny. And she would just like, she wouldn't get upset about that. She'd just go to the next moment, you know, and it was like, wow, talk about a, a total lesson in you know, we get discouraged and we feel like failures when something doesn't work out. Not her, boy. She was just like, okay, so what's the next opportunity? Every moment is an opportunity was what she told us. And we were um, doing a Peruvian despacho ceremony that day, and she wanted to stay for the ceremony. So um, we, she was in her, her kennel which was placed right next to me so that she could see what I was doing. And it was really, I mean, we would explain to her, I mean, I do the animal communication thing, so she knew, you know, why she was there to be, like, representative for the other animals so that they could participate in the ceremony and join with us um, so that we could co-create, you know, a better future for everybody, animals and people together, a partnership. And she watched, I mean, she didn't make a sound, she was com very alert and completely focused on my, um, on the despacho ceremony. What is that kind of ceremony? What is it? Um, it's a Peruvian, well, actually, I should say South American because it's not specific just to Peru, but my training is. Um, it's a 
ceremony, in this case an Aini despacho, to bring things into balance and harmony. And it's where you um, create uh, a landscape of balance and harmony in which you place your prayers and your offerings to spirit, your gifts. Um, it's, a very, it's a very lovely ceremony. It uses all natural items that can be um, eventually when it's, it's a gift. So it is literally assembled as a gift and wrapped and then placed and released into the fire so that it can be consumed, so that the energies um, are released and the gifts can be consumed by spirit. What's the distinction between animal communication and what you're representing as wild Reiki and shamanic healing? Uh, Animal communication kind of speaks for itself, where you're having a dialogue with, um, shall we say, a non-human species. Do you get flashes? Do images come into your mind? Do words come into your head? How does it work? Uh, it's different. I get a lot of information um, feeling-wise. I'm more kinesthetic, uh, as in emotions. Um, but animals have communicated with me. depends on the animal. It can be words. It can be images. It can be feelings. Um, sometimes it's just a knowing. Sounds like telepathic work. Yes. That's definitely the case. And as far as the Reiki enhances, taking a class in Reiki enhances whatever your natural intuitive capabilities are. And so when I do work, say, with the zoo animals or with the animals that are, when I'm going somewhere um, where I'm going to interact with the animals, I'll use Reiki, for example, to send energy and intention ahead letting them know that I'm coming, so I I weave it into the animal communication. Um, Also pulling in aspects of the shamanic um, training that I have, um, both before and during. So I weave, there are essentially three different things that I weave together, which is what we did at the Earth Fire, with conscious intention, you know, with a a specific, not so much outcome, but a goal you know, an intention of what, why it is we're there and what it is we're doing. So the Reiki and the shamanic are energetic vehicles, if you will, that can help support the information that you're getting. That's clear. I did an interview last week with Philip Lembry, who has an organization in the United Kingdom called Compassion in World Farming. And it was all about the systemic treatment of animals throughout the world regarding industrial farming. And it's clear to me now that we're very far away from most of the planet even being able to accept your frame of reference. I really thought we were closer to it. But after hearing what I heard from Philip, I really have a different view of how far away it is because the consciousness is not there. For most of the world in the treatment of animals. So, like, I think we're unique here. Oh, we're definitely more advanced here. And and I agree with you, we're, we're far away, which is why, why Spirit told me and the animals requested the ceremony and the workshop that we did at Earth Fire and other events that I've done um, with um, zoo animals. Uh, because... What I was told by spirit basically kind of, uh, it kind of grew out of my connection and respect for Chief Seattle. 
is that we need to change things and we need to change things quickly. Um, and it started with the whole concept of climate change. And we weren't going to be able to do to do that quickly enough just by making practical changes because it's kind of things are kind of accelerated. So what Spirit said was, but you can shift and change things more quickly if you bring in the old ancient component, shall we say, of ceremony and you know energetic healing. And so the work that we did at Earthfire is the, the intention, both with the people and with the animals, because the animals are, are reaching out towards us. They are... They are willing to work with us despite everything. It's a totally amazing. Despite everything that has happened, everything that we've done to to our world and to them, they still love unconditionally and are willing to meet us more than halfway to turn this around. And so it's kind of the hundredth monkey concept, if you will. If you get like-minded people and animals together, um not just our group, but other groups, you know, you can start to shift things. The consciousness can shift. People can become more aware. I agree with you on that, except for one thing that I realized is that I used to believe personally that the U.S. treated animals way better than other countries did. And you know what I learned? On a personal level of having pets, maybe, but on an industrial level, absolutely not. We are just as bad here as in uh, other countries. It's just as bad. Really, I was so shocked to find that out. I'm so horrified how we treat animals. I can barely stand it. I, you, I won't argue with you. Um, it's, why I, it's why I try to support um, places and local farmers that you know, do organic, sustainable, and humane methods because... It's not just an ethical, um, moral choice, but it's also a choice for our own health because the industrialization of our food sources, plant or animal, are being decimated by the industry and our health is suffering as a result. Absolutely. I mean, it's why, we, why both our animals and people's um, rates of cancer are on the rise. And why children are becoming, um, you know, a much bigger um, percentage of that. It's terrible. We're doing it to ourselves. Would you share a little bit about the shelter project? What happened with the animals when there was a burglary? Just share a little bit about that. I thought that was interesting. Oh, you're talking about the story from my book? Yes. Um, so I was contacted by someone who had... Um, learned of this tragedy and asked to, you know, if I could assist. And the the sh- shelter situation, they took in um, semi-feral, you know, and abandoned um, cats. And they also had birds and uh, reptiles. And someone had broken in, or several someones, and had not only stolen things, but had ruthlessly hurt some of the animals there by kicking them or, in some cases, um, actually stomping on them. 
and there were animals that were dead and animals that were injured. And the outpouring of support from the community was tremendous. Um, when I arrived there with a, another Reiki practitioner, it was a constant stream of people, and the media had, had been there, and um, people were coming in and, you know, giving donations. But, and I was, that outpouring of love and support had helped to heal, and the prayers that people had given had helped to heal some of the energy there. It was not, the energy in the place was not as bad as I had thought that it would be, which was good. However, you know, some of the animals were still suffering from trauma, both emotional and physical. And so we offered energetic support through Reiki and shamanism, um, and I worked for a while with different groups. And the response was, was very positive. So who calls you as a practitioner? Your book says Tales of a Healer, Animals, Reiki, and Shamanism. But when people call you for services, what are they calling you for? Like, give us some examples, different applications. Um, most of my clients are individuals who have animal companions, usually dogs or cats, but I have worked with other animals. And so they're calling because my primary um, candidate, shall we say, is usually an elderly animal who's needing support, you know, for quality of life. There's been some health challenges. Um, that's usually um, my principal client, shall we say. But I work with animals that have been through, have been adopted and have had previously, um, shall we say, less than, less than stellar, you know, experiences, um, puppy mills or abuse situations, abandonment, starvation. And, you know, the animal is, the people are wanting help assisting the animal in adjusting and letting go, basically, of whatever the trauma might have been. Sometimes there's behavioral issues. So um, I approach it more from a communication and energy standpoint, and sometimes I can offer them guidance on, you know, some practical things that they can do to um, shift things that way. So those are the two, I guess, the two main categories, illness and emotional, emotional issues. Try to explain this to us. When you do a prayer for the animals, if they're hurting or they're in pain or if there's been a traumatic event, are they shamanic prayers you do? Are they a specific kind of prayers? Are they done in the language of South America or what? I use prayer on a daily basis um, to kind of set up my my day and receive support from whatever comes my way. Um, and those particular prayers are in the Native American tradition. Um, not one specific tradition, however, but it's a Native American concept. When I work um, in ceremony, I work like doing a despacho um, or setting up a workshop weekend. I'm working within the Peruvian shamanic framework, and my allies um, would be Amaru Tokuchinchai, Kondo Apatin, um, three major organizing principles, um, as well as the, basically you're calling upon, for assistance, you're calling upon your allies in this world, whether they be um, the physical world or the spirit world. And so mountains, for example, are 
spirit allies, individual, um, they're called the Apus in Peruvian shamanism. And we speak, we ask for assistance from, from the Apu, a specific one, perhaps in our neighborhood or around the world, um, to intercede and to work with us. So we're not, I'm not, for example, the source, shall we say, of all the energy and all the power. I'm simply the, again, the, the, the conduit, the hollow bone, um, the power, if you will, or the, the, the healing comes from the world around us in dialogue with whomever it is that is for animal or person. Um, so it's not dissimilar, shall we say, from Reiki, except that in Reiki it's much more, uh, I guess the request, shall we say, is much more general. It's not specific and it's not as structured as the practice of shamanism. Got it. Talk to us a little bit about your take on the chopping up and harpooning of dolphins in Japan and turning them into meat. There's really an uproar about this. And there was a blog that I had responded to about this subject. And I said, the only thing I have to say about this is that no animal in the world needs to suffer in order to die. That is unnecessary. That's my final word. This is unnecessary that they have to suffer in order to become food. And I'm sticking with it. What is your take on it? Well, I um, certainly agree with you from the standpoint of, you know, the, shall we say the raising of food or the, um, the hunting of food. Uh, it's, it gets tough to make distinctions, you know, when there's, cultural issues involved. Um, however, I think in the case of Japan, I hate to say in the case of Japan because... Well, we're talking about uh, we're in Japan all, right now. Not so. all the people in Japan. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. I understand we're talking about the fishing industry in Japan with regard to the context of the uproar that's going on, the upset that's there. Well, this is my take on it. We don't understand our world. We do not understand the, the animals in our world, and we do not understand the balance and the harmony of the wheel of life. Our decisions, and I'm saying our from the standpoint of those you know, who are actively doing these things, are usually decisions that are made from a concept of total self-focus rather than an external focus of harmony. And... That's creating major problems for our ecosystem, which is on the verge of collapse. And I don't think people really understand that. Uh, you cannot, they have proven, dolphins in some ways are the wolves of the sea. They are part of the predator chain. And they have proven with respect to the wolves of the land, scientifically proven, that if you remove the predator from that chain of life, you then create a major imbalance which has a cascade effect down the entire system. In the case of the wolves, when they took the wolves out of the environment, the grazing animals began to overgraze everything, thereby eroding the entire environment, which then the populations of many species of animals plummeted because there was not quality of life for them. That's very interesting. I never thought of that. Um, so that's beyond the moral issue, which I don't think that hurting, I mean, it's appalling to think of hurting 
dolphins into a cove and then just mass slaughtering them, especially when dolphins have consistently rescued people. When people have been drowning, dolphins have come along and assisted them to shore. They've done this to babies, to pregnant dolphins. Terrible. Terrible. It's, it's you know, it's a blot on our, another blot on our, on our books. Um, but we can change it. And our people, I mean, the Japanese people, for example, many of them did not know that this was happening. It's simply a lack of awareness. And, you know, the place where I think it needs to change and can be most quickly applied is actually with our children. Talk about that. That's interesting. I don't have children myself, but I have seen children respond very quickly to an understanding. First of all, they're very open to that the world is a beautiful, magical place that you can talk to animals and have an interaction with them. That gets drilled out of them, shall we say, by our culture over a period of time. And the more disconnected we get, the more unhappy we become. However, with the respect to children, when I was living for a brief time in Wyoming, I became friends with a little girl who lived across the street. And I happened to have pet rats at the time. And I was very well aware of the, you know, usually adult prevailing sentiment with respect to them. Oh, ew, (laughs) how could you? You know, one would say that there's prejudice, definitely. Um, Pet rats, however, they're intelligent. They're very affectionate. They're very loving. They understand their names. They're, you know, they'll come when they're called. They're more than willing to interact with you and to um, have fun with you. So I shared that with the little girl across the street. Kendra was her name. And she brought her friends. And I, you know, just basically took the time to show them how to handle them and how to communicate with them and how to understand them. So they started this I Love Rats Club. <laughs> and the next thing I know, Kendra, they had, she had to give a talk at school, you know, on you know, what she loved the most. And she gave a talk on why she loved rats and, you know, why they were misunderstood by people. And I thought, wow, you're six, you know. But it's like it's so easy to teach something positive. And I was informed by her mother that I was invited to her birthday party. <laughs> I was the only adult I was told that was invited. That's so sweet. It was. And I went, and they were doing these, I don't know what they're called, but you, you, you pour this goop onto a cookie sheet into shapes, and then you bake them, and then you can stick them to your window. And the big thing at the time was Smurfs, but the kids didn't want to make Smurfs. They made me draw rats on the cookie sheet (laughs) and bake so they could stick them on their window. And I thought, I'm not teaching just about animal understanding here. I actually inadvertently taught them about prejudice because you're prejudiced against something that you fear and that you don't understand, which is a universal concept, not just about animals. And I've seen it at the zoo. When I go to the zoo, which I go to support the animals, because they are animal ambassadors and they deserve our support. They work hard at that. And I stand in front of the enclosures and I listen to the people talk, the children and the parents. And I listen to people say terrible things about the animals. You know, they they judge them, they criticize them. They make fun of them. 
I mean, not everybody, of course, you know, or, or they just stare at them. There's no real connection. And that, of course, is passed along to the children. I mean, I watched uh, in the New Orleans Zoo, there was an enclosure with a mother jaguar and her cub. They'd just been um, fed lunch. And it was the type of enclosure that has the glass, so they're literally right there. And the two young boys, probably about seven or eight, were taunting the cub who was eating his meat right up against the glass, tapping on it, you know, making noise, etc. And the mother is watching this. Doing nothing, I imagine. She was doing nothing. The mother jaguar kept rushing the glass, hissing, you know, attempting to protect her cub from what she viewed, rightly so, you know, as, you know, potentially harmful activity. And I just stood there and I was just shocked that the mother, the human mother, was not understanding the same motherly instincts in the mother jaguar, you know, to protect her children. I mean, how would she feel if her kids were sitting at a picnic table and a bunch of people came up and started, you know, harassing them? I don't think most people get that animals are sentient. That's the first paradigm that's off with this whole thing. I've been at Santa Monica Beach and Malibu where I've watched little boys run up to seagulls and start kicking them. And the parents do nothing. Right. Nothing. Unbelievable. Well, and the, but the parents weren't taught to do something. But see, you can break the cycle, I believe, by teaching it, you know, in schools. If I had, and that's why Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots program is so wonderful, because that's where she's approaching it from. Tell us what she's doing. Well, my understanding of what she's doing and is, is that she's teaching those type of educational programs. She's getting children involved in um, connecting with their environment having projects, things that they can do, which, of course, is an educative process. And she's understanding that, you know, the, the little shoots that you cultivate are grow up to be, you know, the next generation. And if that next generation has an understanding that we're all part of this and we're all connected and, you know, we're either all going to succeed together or we're all going to go down together, um... And, and you can do that with children. And they'll take this home and maybe they'll shift, you know, things at home as well because, you know, things can change that way as well. That's a great program. I would imagine that's going to be a very helpful program for kids. I have a very, I have tremendous respect for Jane Goodall and how she's chosen to um, broaden her message to um, attempt to make a real difference in this world. I love the work that you're doing, and I'm so happy that you're out there. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, I think that the animals would like everybody to know that they are present and that they are an untapped resource from the standpoint of co-creation. And you can start with the animals in your household because they are connected to the, to the wildlife, we're all connected. So if you work with who you know best, you know, attempting to understand them better, attempting to connect with them from a heart standpoint, not from our heads, but from our hearts, 
trying to perceive the world through their eyes, um, maybe even possibly getting down to their level and looking at the world through their eyes, but I'm thinking more from the standpoint of how does what we do appear to them? Um, how does it affect them? How do they um, understand it? Ask them to teach you. You'd be surprised what if you suddenly go, hmm, I'm thinking that I'm not getting this. Can you teach me? Um, can produce some tremendous results. Um, like my experience, you know, with Cucumber the Wolf. Um, we asked and the animals stepped forward and connected. I mean, I had, you know, an adult timber wolf walk up to me, hold my eyes, and basically say, I am here, and I invite you to build that bridge with me. <laughs> and my, my newest kitten, Bagheera, has just jumped up my leg. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many interviews I've done where people's cats jumped up on them and started to speak. So funny. Even the most serious interviews, the cats will come up or the dogs will come around. You'll hear barking. I mean, it's a riot. Yeah. it's Well, you know, they, they want to be heard, too. And when we were at Earthfire, I mean, Bagheera is purring in the microphone and patting it at the moment. <laughs> um, but at Earthfire, you know, whenever I would say, as we would have the workshop and I would say something, you know, like significant, the wolves who were, I don't know, at least 600 yards from us, at least, you know, would howl. It was like having punctuation marks. <laughs> they were totally, you know, they are very, very aware of energy, our animals. And so the more balanced, grounded, and centered we become, the better it is not just for us, but for everyone around us, and that includes our animal companions. So if we work on becoming better people, you know, healthier people and happier people. That carries over to everybody. I mean, I, let's go all Christmas and say, you know, that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. How the ripples that spread from your actions affect others. Well, how you feel and, um, and your intention also have the same effect. We're very delighted that you've joined us today, and we hope you will come back with a couple other people that are involved in animal communication, in caring for animals. We really appreciate you joining us today. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Rose Dedan. She is the author of Tales of a Healer, and she can be reached by going to com, spelled R-E-I-K-I-S. H-A-M, like Mary, A-N, like Nancy, I-C, dot com. And we thank you so much for joining us, Rose. Thank you so much, Kim.